0: Welcome to the rise in resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Tsveta Petrova, a lecturer in the political science department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, these parties have not only come to power, but also remained in office in consecutive elections. In the interviews for this series, we will interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series does not constitute an endorsement of the contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewee alone. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Erszpieta Korolczuk who is a sociologist working at Turn University in Sweden. She also teaches at the Gender Studies Center at Warsaw University and the Institute for Advanced Study in Warsaw. Her research interests include social movements, civil society, and gender. Some of her publications include the books Farewell to the Polish Mother, Rebellious Parents, and Civil Society Revisited. And some of the most recent research projects she has been involved in are focused on developing a relational theory of reproductive justice of surrogacy in Baltic Central and Eastern Europe, as well as comparing elite composition, reproduction, integration, and contestation in European civil societies. Professor Korchok, how are you?
1: Uh, I'm great, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and inviting me to have this conversation, I'm very excited about this. Welcome to our
0: podcast series. You have just published a co-authored book uh, with Agnieszka Graf. And this book is titled Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Moment. Could you please introduce and define for us the populist and the anti-gender movements that you're studying?
1: Basically, we're looking at a new wave of mobilization against uh, what uh, activists are calling gender ideology or LGBTQ ideology sometimes, which encompasses uh, issues such as reproductive rights, sexual democracy, uh, family policies, issues connected to uh, uh, children's education and so on. So it is quite a wide approach, I would say. I and mean, in that sense, it is something new comparing to the usual uh, or the old type of anti-feminist uh, mobilizations, or anti-choice groups. Uh, and what we observe is the integration of different actors, both internationally and on the national level. Uh, both religious actors connected to Catholic church, or I would say the more fundamentalist uh, types of organizations and networks within the Catholic church, Within the um, Orthodox Church, uh, within uh, evangelical groups, uh, and so on. So, so we have here quite ecumenical uh, range of actors and type of engagement around issues, as I said, connected to uh, broadly defined gender. And when I say gender, um, these actors are often uh, often see. Um, the uh, um, gender studies or gender theory as something that is basically very dangerous to the stability of uh, gender relations uh, or relations between women and men, of course, because they think that, uh, believe that this is a binary category. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, when we talk about populism, uh, we are following together with my colleague, the Venetians uh, proposed by scholars such as Chantal Mouffe or Kasmuda, who look at how gender is a thin, um, in a way, thin-centered ideology. So it is an ideological project, but it is usually connected with other more robust ideologies, such as racism or, uh, in this case, misogyny. I would say patriarchy would be probably uh, the the good um, uh, term for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this uh, this uh, take on populism focuses uh, on the divisions between us and them, the elite, the corrupt elites, and the, the innocent local people, which is moral, which is a moral divide, mm-hmm. not, not only a division of power. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, the uh, um, those who embrace this populist uh, framework um, are have tendency to work uh, towards polarization, uh, towards marginalization of the groups and people uh, that they see as enemies or as dangerous to uh, to the nation and to the community. So here we have a, um, a connection, a strong connection between uh, populism and uh, gender.
0: But now let me ask you how has the contemporary anti-gender discourse come to be structured as a populist discourse?
1: Uh, what uh, makes this anti-gender um, framework or a frame if we use uh, notion from social uh, movement studies, um, what makes it so, um, so useful for um, uh, right-wing populists is the fact that anti-genderism, as a discourse, as a narrative, as a as a way of looking at the world, is structured around the same uh, structure, basically in the same way as as populist discourse, right? So it very much focuses on the divide between us and them. It is uh, deeply it is deeply moralized division. So it's not only about who has power and who has not, but it's also about who is generally evil and who is generally good. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And now, focusing on Poland in specific, why has the term gender become such an important but controversial concept in recent years?
1: Well, when we started to look at it uh, around 2012, that was the moment where the issue of Istanbul uh, Convention was... when the ratification of the Istanbul Convention was discussed in the Polish parliament and in the Polish society, we started to see this notion of gender as danger. The mm-hmm. idea that it's, uh, for example, the Istanbul Convention, which basically helps the state to counteract uh, gender-based violence, violence against uh, women and girls. that it is a Trojan horse, which brings in um, a dangerous and, and uh, complex ideology called genderism. That the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, we want to deprive people of their um, identities um, rooted in their sexual bodies, in a sense, and their reproductive, uh, rep- reproductive capacities. And therefore, we can weaken the nation and we can weaken uh, whole communities, uh, weaken Poland, in a sense. Uh, gender is often seen as this um, foreign imposition, as colonization. On the one hand, in the Polish context, then there will be uh, this colonization, which is brought about by the West onto the East.
0: Mm. So focusing on Poland again, um, could you tell us a little bit about who the main actors are in these movements and what are some of their main recent campaigns?
1: Civil society organizations, um, um, organizations which focus on Some of them which emerged around the you know in the 1990s um already then um uh, trying to push for successfully we should say for limiting um reproductive uh, rights of women Mm -hmm. some of them are um newer um they they would they're what i would call the sort of uh 2.0 type of ultra conservative uh, organization so they are very professional they are focusing on um, uh, lobbying, advocacy—they uh, are very savvy in terms of legal procedures. Mm. Um, and, and an example of that is of the Juris um, Institute, which positions itself as um, as um, think tank, basically offering um, offering uh, education, offering support for the alleged victims of genderism and uh, um, and um, uh, Christianophobia in Poland. Um, and, and they are they have uh, over 40 employees, I think, most of them lawyers, and they are extremely active when it comes to basically suing people whom they think are uh, dangerous in terms of you know, this idea of uh, promoting uh, gender ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you have also religious actors. Uh, so you would have certain bishops, or um, in, in the Polish case, it will be the whole episcopacy, I would say, or mm-hmm. episcopate, um, which, uh, which support and promote the idea of uh, genderism as a new form of uh, communism or Nazism. Um, and also you have clearly the, um, some intellectuals, like uh, people working in the academy, and of course politicians. And it's quite interesting because at, at the beginning in 2012, it was mostly this uh, fringe right-wing parties mm-hmm. which were involved in uh, promoting these ideas, but uh, slowly but surely uh, law and justice took on this, uh, this agenda, I would say. Um, and right now they are very much invested in um, opposing LGBTQ rights, in opposing women's reproductive rights and promoting the vision of uh, traditional family as the only model that we should all follow. So, in that sense, you have um, a coalition which is um, engaged in what we call, with Agnieszka Graf, uh, the opportunistic synergy, or mm-hmm. which are who are linked by uh, the logic of opportunistic synergy. But there, is, there are uh, ideological um, uh, allegiance or uh, coherence, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see that for some. Uh, especially political actors, it is a very opportunistic choice to take on uh, these ideas and political goals. Uh, But for other uh, actors, it is also a matter, especially for civil society actors, it is a matter of having access to voice, resources, um, to to the process of legitimation of their position as experts, ultimately in the Polish context we see this process of institutionalization of the of the ultra conservative anti gender movement within state um, structures as mm-hmm. in the case of orderys whose representatives mm-hmm. are being delegated to key commissions uh, or uh, are sitting in the uh, supreme court
0: now so If I could try and summarize, um, you're seeing a fairly diverse coalition. Some of it is civil society, even NGO type organizations uh, working together with the religious organizations and their media groups, as well as intellectuals, um, but also politicians on the right, not on the extreme, but, but certainly on the right. Um, And there is some ideological affinity between the groups in in that coalition, but primarily their collaboration is opportunistic with the uh, politicians looking towards the ultra-conservatives to mobilize voters at elections, um, whereas the ultra-conservatives gain from this collaboration legitimacy, as well as representation within the state and resources from it.
1: Yes, Um, I would also add to this mix uh, on the transnational level, for example, if you look at uh, the people present uh, at the World Congress of Families in Verona in 2019, which I happen to to be present at, you could also see, for example, members of aristocracy, this kind of, you know, zombie aristocrats who are traveling around Europe and often um, have quite lucrative positions um, with the church or with certain states. And you would have uh, some uh, examples of, or some some, um, cases where also business elites are heavily involved. Although I would say that they usually keep a sort of a lower profile. So in that sense, you could see the process of elite integration, of the integration of of, uh, uh, conservative or ultra conservative, I would say, because these are not the usual type of old conservative um, actors. Um, and this process is very much, uh, uh, I, uh, as we already established, opportunistic. Um, and also, I think that in, um, in the case of uh, anti-genderism, there is this element which we can see uh, being used by, for example, right-wing populists in Poland. This juxtaposition or this uh, role reversal between uh, perpetrator and uh, and the victim, right? So this, which has been described by this process, which has been described by many scholars, including Ruth Fodak, for example, who talks about if you are able to convince people that those who are vulnerable uh, socially and culturally, the, the minority groups, are the, the enemies and they are dangerous, they are coming, they are coming here to get us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to um, justify acts of violence as self-defense. Mm-hmm. So this victim-perpetrator reversal is mm-hmm. an element which, um, which is needed, in a sense, for the uh, right-wing populist uh, um, uh, uh, narratives to work. Mm-hmm. And the question is always, what happens if, uh, I mean, what you do once you become an elite? Like it happened in Poland, right? Where are your enemies? For how long can you blame your predecessors of being the source of social and cultural problems that people encounter? So this notion of um, of gender as an ideology that is, uh, you know, that is threatening children's uh, healthy development, that is threatening families, that uh, will enable sexualization of of young girls and boys allows to establish the threat mm-hmm. um, and instigate fear, mm-hmm. but also enables to create a very clear uh, por- a portrait of uh, portrayal of the, uh, of the enemy.
0: What's interesting is that in addition to this reversal of the roles of victim and perpetrator that you've just talked about, the discourse around victimhood has another dimension which is that this coalition of anti-gender and populist movements also portrays itself both as a victim, but also as a hero.
1: So there is always this ambivalence between being um, being the ones who are enlightened and the ones who are endangered in, in a sense, right? Being the ones who, who um, are in a way elite because we know we have access to knowledge and understanding of the world, but at the same time being, um, marginalized and victimized uh by them by the others and i think that um what uh, what strengthens this um, this um, um narrative of victimhood in uh central eastern europe in poland is of course this historical narrative of you know poland as the martyr of the nations in a sense right mm-hmm. we have been always the ones who suffered for ourselves, but also for others, for the sake of, for the sake of um, Europe's integrity, for example, right? So, in that sense, this notion of victimhood has many different layers. Uh, on the one hand, it is the question of individual positioning of specific people. Um, this notion of moral majority, their view or their belief that they are. Uh, presenting my jo- majority um, opinions, but they are being victimized by a small but powerful uh, minority, this is something that we can also see um, in case of anti-gender campaigns in Poland. But I think that it's worth to mention two elements here. One is the question of emotions. Mm. Um, emotions as a political tool and emotions as um, as, um, as a way to address wider audience um, and the emotions are being socially constructed by these uh, by, by, by these actors in a very efficient way. And of course we tend to think about uh, right-wing actors are using, uh, 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 as of them, we think of them as those who are usually using kind of negative emotions, right, in quotation marks, like fear or anger. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are very much invested in constructing and promoting um, emotions that can be termed as positive, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: such as love, connection,
0: solidarity, Mm -hmm. community.
1: So what what integrates them, but also which draws people to the movement is not only um, the fact that it offers a specific type of incentives for the people engaged, but also because it creates a sense of community of values,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Yeah.
1: Um, And I think that we should not underestimate it.
0: So here you emphasize for us um, that these two movements mobilize uh, supporters by in dual ways. On the one hand, there is a sense of looming threat, but also a sense of belonging. And in a way that's done in very much in opposition to what is perceived oftentimes as the social atomization of the liberalist project that they're also opposing. So let me use that as an opportunity to ask you about the relationship between the collaboration of these two movements and the resistance to neoliberalism in Eastern Europe.
1: When I uh, listened to uh, the Polish left or the Polish feminist movement, which I happen to be a part of, I had this that we still believe that we, as a, a social cultural formation uh, and uh, as, a, as, a, as a movement in a sense, um, own opposition or resistance to neoliberalism. And I think that this is wrong, because I, I, I believe, and, and we, we show it uh, in, in detail in the book uh, with Agnieszka, that um, what the anti-gender movement is doing uh, in tandem with right-wing populism is to um, propose or frame its uh, political agenda as uh, an alternative to neoliberalism especially uh, in its um, um, social cultural form which they identify with um, individualism or rampant individualism um, as, um, as the demise of community, as alienation, as precarization, and so on. And of course, uh, the anti-gender actors do not use the term neoliberalism. They would, they would talk about um, um, capitalism or they would talk about the greed of the godless markets, as, as the Pope um, has uh, coined it, um, but they identify some of the negative effects that neoliberalism um, identified not only as the, the dominance of the markets, but also as as a social cultural formation, has on people. So they they offer, and in that sense, there is there is an interesting convergence between, for example, um, anti gender uh, critique of feminism as basically neoliberal project which promotes you know uh, women having better positions leaning in and um, acting as individual subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, some feminist critiques of what they call, such as Nancy Fraser, for example, what they call um, um, neoliberal feminism And and also the question is um, to what extent are we able to counter this um, very strong um, idea or this very strong perspective that the only refuge from neoliberal markets is the family mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the private sphere understood as you know me my my uh, children my partner and my my closest family basically right
0: so uh, you you've really discussed this interesting um reversal Um, within the gender movement, within the feminist movement. Um, And the fact that with its emergence, the coalition between the anti-gender movement and the populist movement have really in some ways appropriated and in other ways added to not just the anti-colonialist discourse, but also the anti-liberal discourse in Eastern Europe. That, That reminds me that this project of opening of Eastern Europe towards market and the outside world was accompanied by a third transition, which is the domestic liberal transition from communism to democracy. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, what is the democratic mo- model that is contested by this coalition of the anti-gender and the populist movements? And what is the model of democracy that they put forward to? Because again, oftentimes we see them presenting themselves as saviors and rejuvenator of democracy, as the voice of the common people and allegedly underrepresented marginalized and abandoned um, groups within the Eastern European societies. Mm.
1: I think that um, probably the, the illiberal democracy, if something like that exists, would uh, probably be the best term to, to capture it. Because what they are saying and what they are actually doing in countries where they have power, like in, in Poland, uh, is to stick with the um, shell or the shape of democracy. I would say a shell because I don't believe that you can have actual um uh, while work, working or functioning democracy without values and without norms but uh, they, they uh, in a way perpetuate this idea that the uh, democracy the ideal and practice of democracy rejuvenating re- rejuvenated by um breaking the norms breaking the the, the rules of the game right for mm-hmm. example with the judiciary um and uh, what they're really opposing is, Um, First of all, the idea of checks and balances in its many forms in different countries, Um, but basically the division of powers, and the idea of uh, independence of certain institutions within the state structure. But they also oppose um, uh, the idea of uh, uh, the norms or values, such as um, individual or group rights, or minority group rights actually, because majority has the hegemony here. Mm-hmm. um uh, pluralism is something that they are deeply uh, suspicious of mm-hmm. um and uh, um, and the idea that an individual and this is where where we uh, approach the question of human rights that an individual has any rights as an individual. Mm-hmm. And here is a quite interesting um overlap between the neoliberal, uh, vision of citizenship as depend, being dependent on your value to the markets and the vision of citizenship or uh, uh, political belonging within the uh, right-wing populist uh, pra- political practice as being dependent on, uh, on your uh, value to the nation. But what they're actually doing is strengthening this project in the sense that That once you start dividing people into those who um, are worth less and those who are worth more, um, because of their skin color, because of their gender, because of their their reproductive capacity, and so on, uh, you are descending into what is ultimately uh, a fascist project. And I think that this is what is happening in Poland now. So if you believe that um, that you can sacrifice individuals, then it, it ends in suffering of individuals. And at the same time, we have, I don't know how many, probably dozens of people who are dying, the refugees and migrants who are dying at the Polish Belarusian borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're being based, I mean, they're not dying by accident. <laughs> they are at mm-hmm. least being allowed to die, or actually they're killed or murdered by both the Belarusian and Polish uh, border patrols. Mm. Um, and this is the moment where, where this idea of um, that you can really select people and treat them differently mm. uh, because of their um, legal status or because of their gender, or because of the fact that they happen to be pregnant it brings horrible proofs
0: neither the anti-gender nor the populist movement in Eastern Europe are new to the present. They have something of a history in that region. But I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how those two came together and what are the specific campaigns where you see that opportunistic synergy developing?
1: I would say that I mean, in a way, the the the, the synergic part here um, means that even though both of those uh, trends or those in terms of also organizational forms existed before, because they joined forces, they become much more salient and much more powerful and much more effective. Mm. Right. So only if you add to the mix those elements, uh, you 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 have uh, uh, those. Uh, electoral successes and those uh, continuing um, quest for power, as in the case of Poland, for example. So I'm not saying that this formula works everywhere and that it works everywhere in the same way, um, but I think that it, we could find quite a few analogies between, you know, Trump is in, in the United States and a law and justice rule in the, in Poland in, in this respect. Um, but um, I'm also thinking about um in terms of what is new here, um, I think that um, we we use the term in the in the title of the book, the populist moment. Uh, I think it's quite important that this opportunistic synergy um, has been forged in the moment uh, in, in in the in the period of time which uh, is um, uh, ripe with uncertainties. Right, which is really. Um, as Chantal Mou has has, um, uh, termed it, it is a moment where established hierarchies of domination uh, are are being questioned by different actors who feel that their uh, demands have not been met.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So this is the moment where we see an increase in anti-elitism, an increase in in, uh, lack of trust or distrust towards democracy. Uh, And of course it is very, complex. On the one hand, the aftermath of the 2008 um, economic crisis with its ripple effects, a crisis of the European Union as an institution, but also as an, as an idea, um, and, and all those elements. And of course, you have the transnational context with the changing positions of power with you know, United States, China and so on. So in that sense, there is this sense, deep sense of instability, mm. right? Which make people much more prone to look for quick fixes, for easy solutions. And of course, the anti-gender uh, proposition is to come back to what uh, was allegedly working, which is you know traditional characters of gender and traditional family. And the right wing populists um, are taking this on to show that they have a solution to the sense of uncertainty and anxieties. That uh, that people feel so deeply, and, and on the top of that, they offer a sense of economic stability as well, mm-hmm. with uh, programs such as 500 plus or the rising the minimum wage, and mm-hmm. so on. And it also works in strengthening the connection between the electorate and the politicians, right? Because this is this is a, in a sense in the handout. Uh, that is connected to specific people who go out there and say, we gave you this money, we gave you a sense of uh, um, stability in your economic life. So these two elements, cultural and socioeconomic, are very much connected.
0: So what then is the social identity that these movements have constructed together? In other words, why do ordinary pause take part in the grassroots mobilization behind these two movements?
1: I would say that they have different, different people have different motivations and I guess uh, we have this tendency to see social movements are more or less homogeneous and we also have a tendency to think of their supporters are more or less um, similar in a way in their motivations and in their mm-hmm. um, positions. Uh, and I would like to talk about at least three types of motivations. Um, On the one hand, you would have people who are really scared about the pace of uh, cultural change, right? So this is the type of, oh my goodness, my my child will be turned into a homosexual Mm -hmm. uh, type, right? So, uh, and this is mostly older religious people um, who are uh, afraid that the world is changing so quickly that it might really have detrimental effects on, on their children, grandchildren, and, and so on. So it is a combination of social conservatism and relig- deep religiousness. And it is, of course, connected to with um, the uh, characteristics such as level of education, age, and so on, the, the access to information, basically. Um, the second group is um, consists of mostly young men, but some older, too. Um, who are very much uh, losing their, uh, their, in their view, losing their hegemonic position within the society. This sense of, of being threatened in their position of, of authority or dominance is connected to a very specific emotional dynamic which um, allows them to support, um, well, violence showing weakness in a sense and accepting weakness in others is being structured or framed as something that is imposed on you by political correctness Mm. Mm. and once you shed this you can be free to feel hatred you know be openly racist for example and Mm. that there is this almost joy in this process of um Becoming free of yeah. compassion, love, um, uh, solidarity with with others, and so on, because this is something that uh, I guess blocks the possibility to um, to actually invite other people into a community of compassionate citizens, right? In the context of violence, such as violence at the borders, Polish or uh, American, in this, in this context. Um, And the third group are, I would say, people who are, um, for whom this is part of the very, um, very coherent ideological project. So this would be the leaders, for example, of of anti-gender organizations. Uh, This would be some of the political leaders who have a very um, anti-modernist vision of society, I would say, and the social structure and power hierarchies. So what they want is to come back to the world, which is less equal, which is less, uh, less in solidarity with those in need, uh, which is uh, uh, not pluralistic, right? Where, and this is, and this is ideological project, basically. And this is the whole package, right? That we want uh, migrants, and women and gays to know their place. Mm-hmm. And once we reestablish this clear hierarchy, then we will be able to, to, you know, rest in peace in a sense, because then we will have a stable, uh, stable uh, country. So I, I would really differentiate with, between those three groups in terms of motivations and also their ideological positions.
0: Mm-hmm. So on the uh, mobilized part, You emphasize those who are preoccupied with anxiety and frustration about modernity, as well as wish for a patriarchal social order. And then on the elite side, both in terms of civil society and political elites, we have a desire for a reversal towards a less pluralistic and less solidaristic world. What are some of the similarities and differences between the varieties? Um, of these kinds of collaborations around the world.
1: Well, um, one obvious um, element is the degree to which uh, these discourses are openly homophobic, uh, misogynist, or uh, or anti-Semitic, for example. If you look at because I work also in Sweden, so I often compare these two countries, um, and in this quite interesting how in the, um, uh, in the Polish context, uh, gender as a set of beliefs about, you know, sexuality, body reproduction and so on, um, is seen as, um, as basically an attack on uh, Catholicism, Mm -hmm. whereas in, uh, uh, in Sweden, for example, it is criticized as a form of almost religious cult, the church gender in a sense, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the the second uh, issue would be the level of um, homo nationalism or, or feminationalism, right? So th- these two terms re- reflect the ways, the sort of um, strategic ways in which right wing um, actors use um, LGBT rights or women's rights in order to create a sense of division between um, between refugees, migrants, basically Muslim um, people. In, in the Swedish context, um, I could give an example of um, electoral campaign of Sweden Democrats who used this uh, slogan um, addressing women, you should be feeling safe in the city, right? And of course, at face value, it's a basically feminist slogan, right? You should be feeling safe in the city, but in the in the uh, context of anti-migration um, um, rhetorics uh, of Sweden Democrats, it is quite clear that women are not safe in the city because we and allowed, uh, you know, those brown or black men from. Africa or um, Asia enter the country, uh, and it's the same with um, the question of um, homosexuality, right? In the German context, AfD, for example, as we know, had a, um, a, not long ago uh, a leader who was um, a lesbian mother of two. I think so. The idea was that there, are those we are the good Germans who um, who allow. People to be themselves, and we have to defend our country from um, from those barbarians, from you know other cultural contexts and other religions, of course. In the Polish context, I would say it is much more openly homophobic and misogynistic um, mm-hmm. uh, rhetoric, right? So it's it's not so much that we are the most civilized. Um, um, West, but in the Polish context, it's mostly and it, that was visible especially in 2015 um, in the electoral campaign when there was um, the issue of gender and migration has been connected as as part of the same uh, agenda uh, in a way that the uh, um, feminists or LGBT activists were accused of weakening masculinity or weakening the nation um, also through abortion, for example. So population um, uh, perspective is is also important here in order to bring in um, migrants. And that uh, will allegedly result in, uh, you know, global elites being able to control Polish people because they will will be deprived of their cultural identity or their religion and so on and so forth. Mm. So so these, um, there are a lot of nuances uh, which differ uh, the use of, of gender and sexuality in different contexts.
0: Mm-hmm. You've talked about the affinity as well as the organizational cooperation between the anti-gender and the populist movements. Um, and so I wonder what are some of the tensions between those two movements, as well as some of the pushback against them from feminist and other movements? And what does that spell for the resilience of this collaboration going forward?
1: So, in a sense, um, um, the cooperation between those two types of actors, then civil society and the religious ones on the one hand and the political ones on the other hand, um, is often there are tensions concerning um, power, the division of power, the division of resources. Mm -hmm. um, And also there is always the question of political responsibility of those who are making decisions for the outcomes of these decisions. Different groups within this movement have different priorities and different type of um, strategies. So for example, in 2016, um, the Juris Institute and and, um, the Stop Abortion Committee has uh, promoted or put forward a law proposal which included up to five year in prison for women who undergo abortion. And quite a lot of um, uh, anti-choice organizations Uh, did not support it because they felt that this might be too much and it will backfire. Mm. Um, And at that moment um, it backfired because in 2016 we had a huge mobilization, mass mobilization of Polish women Mm -hmm. which uh, allowed us to stop this proposal uh, from being um, debated in the parliament. Uh, So one of the ways in which um, um, this 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 project of, of anti-gender campaigns can be stopped is the usual mass mobilization. Right, mm-hmm. it doesn't always help because it didn't help with the introduction of the <clears throat> further restriction on abortion in 2020 by the ruling of the constitutional tribunal. But um, it helped to consolidate. Um, more progressive views among the Polish population, especially among young people who are um, the most progressive uh, ones when it comes to, uh, to um, Central Europe and I think comparably to, to other countries might be also true. And I think that the uh, sort of final element that I would like to mention is, and of course there will be a lot of more and there should be, um, is the question about how to reclaim uh, values such as family community solidarity and it's quite clear that it is uh, extremely difficult but I don't think that um, that it can be abandoned in a sense I don't have a clear solution to that but I think that in terms of uh, norms and, and values the issue of um, of Family, the redefinition of family, the issue of community and, and solidarity within uh, or with people around us are of key importance for the future.
0: Professor Koruchuk, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation about the anti gender and populist movements in Poland. Um, your book. The anti-gender politics in the populist moment is available in open access on Rutledge's website and I encourage our audience to to read it. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope that you will tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website at edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe. Thank you.